Misha here. If you enjoy our episodes on career pathways in healthcare or the STEM field at large, then I have the perfect podcast recommendation for you, Raising Health. Previously called BioEats World, Raising Health comes from leading venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, the same team behind the acclaimed A16Z podcast. Each episode, Raising Health dives deep into the heart of healthcare, biotech, and AI with venture capital investors and A16Z general partners. Along the way, they explore the real challenges and opportunities in health and biotech entrepreneurship. So whether you're interested in building a new digital healthcare company or your company is advancing a new novel medicine, Raising Health sheds light on some of the opportunities and obstacles along the founder's journey. Not to mention, you'll hear raw insights, actionable advice from notable guests like Omada CEO and co-founder Sean Duffy, an AI expert and in situ CEO Daphne Kohler. Don't miss out. Follow Raising Health on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and tell them I sent you. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, out. it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. This week's story is from Eliza Strickland. The story was recorded in July 2013 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme of the evening was Close to Death. So, there I was in the middle of a typhoon on a little old ferry boat and I was staring at a sign on the wall that said, no passengers allowed on this boat more than 20 miles offshore. Now, we were about 85 miles off the coast of Guam, and I was about 7,900 miles away from my cubicle in New York City, which is where I would normally have been spending the day. Uh, I work as a science writer for the technology magazine IEEE Spectrum, and in the spring of 2011, I got interested in the race to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the deepest spot in the world's oceans. Now, there'd been one manned expedition to the trench before in 1960, when two guys went down in a crazy contraption called a bathyscaphe. But in 2011, a couple teams were vying to do the first solo expedition down to the bottom of the trench. And I got interested in one of the teams called Virgin Oceanic, so I called up the engineer on this team, a guy named Kevin Hardy, and I just wanted to talk to him about the engineering challenges of sending anything down to the bottom of the trench, because it is no easy task. It's about seven miles deep, and the pressure at the bottom is absolutely crushing. If you imagine an elephant standing on a postage stamp, that's about the amount of pressure that's exerted on every inch of anything that goes down to the bottom of the trench. So I called up Kevin, and he explained to me that he actually wasn't working on the sub that would take a pilot down on this manned expedition. He was working on robots that he called landers. Um, and the landers, well, so the, the manned sub would swoop down to the bottom of the trench, and it would make news and make history. Uh, the landers would go down, and they would actually do the science. Um, they would shoot video, 
and they would collect samples, water samples, and maybe even capture some critters that live down there. We have no idea what lives down there. So Kevin explained to me that he was going to be testing the lander for the first time that summer. And then he said those magic words, do you want to come with us? And I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> so it's a hot day, July 2011, and I walk into the University of Guam Marine Lab to meet Kevin Hardy for the first time. And he's in his mid-60s, he's weather-beaten from spending his whole life on boats, and he's got this infectious enthusiasm and this DIY spirit. When I met him, he was uh, actually weighing engine blocks they just hauled from the Guam scrapyard um, because he was going to use them as anchors to bring his lander down to the bottom faster. Um, he was also attaching a metal canister to the anchors. I said, hey, you know, Kevin, what you got there? He said, well, it's a promise made and a promise kept. It turns out he had gotten to know the guys on that first 1960 expedition to the bottom of the trench. Uh, and one of them, a guy named Andy Reckmeister, became his mentor. And they talked for decades about going down to the trench together. It became Kevin's life mission to make it to the bottom of the trench. But it took decades to get the technology ready, to get the team together, to get the funding together. And in that time, Andy unfortunately passed away. So Kevin said, what I have here is a canister with his ashes and I'm going to send them down to the bottom of the trench. There's a little mojo going down on our mission. So Kevin was telling me all this when a phone call came in, and it was a call from a guy named Chris Welsh, who was another key member of this team. He was actually the money bags behind the mission. Uh, he was, uh, he'd made his money in trailer park real estate, <laughs> and he was one of these rich guys who likes to drive fast cars and fly planes and sail racing yachts. And when he came across a half-finished sub on the market, he was like, I can probably pilot that, too. And he bought it. Um, so he called, up the, uh, he called us up at the Marine Lab because he was at the, university, he was at the Guam airport. Uh, he was going to come with us on this expedition. And he figured he'd um, rent a Cessna for a little while and just take a spin around the island to sort of check things out. And he wanted to know if anyone, want, anyone wanted to come with him. I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> So uh, up we go in the Cessna. We're sort of tootling around the island. Um, and I asked Chris, you know, why do you want to do this mission to the trench? There's a very good chance that you could die doing this. And he says, well, you know, I've done pretty well in my life. I've uh, achieved a lot of my goals. And now I'm at that point in my life that every man gets to when I really want to set a world record. And he said, I thought about doing the world's highest skydive, even though I never skydived before in my life. But then I came across this sub, and I figured, well, hell, why not be the guy who does the first solo expedition to the Mariana Trench? Uh, and it really struck me, uh, thinking about Kevin and Chris, these two key guys of the team. Um, they're both adventurers. They're both explorers. But Chris wants to be the guy inside the sub when it goes down to the bottom. Kevin just wants to know what's down there. So we were supposed to leave that night, but there was a storm brewing in the Pacific. And we looked at the weather maps and we decided it was too dangerous to go that night. We'd wait for the morning. We'd leave first thing the next morning, and hopefully we'd have about 24 hours when we could 
get to the trench, do our science, and get back. So 7.30 the next morning, I'm climbing aboard the SS Super Emerald. And this is not a proper research vessel at all. This is what people in marine science call a ship of opportunity. <laughs> that means it's available at the right time and for the right price. Uh, it's actually a retired ferry boat, about just a little bit bigger than a, uh, than a fishing boat. Um, and so we set off, we head out towards the trench, and it's a beautiful day, and I'm putting on sunscreen. Um, but I do notice the life rafts, which are more properly referred to as cling rafts, um, because you could cling onto them if you really had to. Um, they're basically big ovals of foam with a mesh net for a bottom. So, you know, they keep you from drowning, but they wouldn't do a lot against, like, hypothermia or sharks. Um, but I'm not really thinking about that as we head out towards the trench. Um, it takes all day to get out there. We get out there around sunset, and we get ready to drop the lander over the side. Now, the lander, by the way, is named Patty, and she's pretty adorable. She's got two sample tubes that uh, will collect the water and maybe catch some critters. Uh, she's got two spheres on top of those that house all the electronics, two glass spheres. And on top of that, she's got kind of an orange hard hat. And that's supposed to make her more visible when she pops up after her long trip. So we get Patty ready. She's about a $30,000 piece of equipment. And her scientific payload is way more valuable than that. Um, but we've got her up on this DIY rigging. Kevin's got a crane rigged up, and we winch her up, move her over to the side, and drop her down. And everybody's whooping and hollering and saying, goodbye, Patty. And Kevin and Chris rush over to the sonar monitor, and they're, they're going to watch her as she descends. They can sort of ping her with sonar all the way down. So it's slow, but it's steady. She's one mile down. She's two miles down. She's going down really smoothly. But up on the surface, things are not so smooth. The waves are getting higher and higher. The wind is starting to pick up. The sun's still, you know, the sunset's fading away. Um, that's about the time. Well, I'd had one piece of mango that whole day. That was my meal that day, and that's about the time I lost it. Um, so Patty's still going down. She's three miles down. She's four miles down. And now it's night. And I'm standing on the deck with Kevin and Chris, and we're looking at the stars, looking at a beautiful Pacific sky. And then we notice that the stars are starting to disappear, and the clouds are creeping across the sky. And we realize there's a storm coming in. And Kevin says, wow, visibility just went from across the universe to zero. Um, and Patty's still going down. She's five miles down. She's six miles down. And then she hits the bottom. And Kevin is as proud as a new father. He knows that his creation is just plumped down onto the bottom of the Mariana Trench. He's finally gone deep. And he gives the command that sends uh, current through the burn wire to drop the anchor and clam shut the, the doors in the sample tube. And he drops the canister with his friend Andy's ashes. So that's... That's the promise made and the promise kept. And then Patty starts her long rise up. And she's one miles up. She's two miles up. And that's about 
the last I noticed, because that's about when the storm hits us. The rain is bashing against the windows and slashing against the deck. The waves are enormous, and they're crashing over the boat. There's, uh, well, at this point, I'm lying in a sleeping bag, kind of moaning to myself. And there's a toolbox overhead that crashes open, and there's metal things rolling down on me. Uh, a refrigerator door pops open, and there's Gatorade bottles rolling across the floor. The ship is pitching and heaving, and the rain is relentless. And I am staring at a sign on the wall that says, no passengers allowed more than 20 miles offshore. <laughs> so at that point, I must have lapsed into some kind of queasy unconsciousness, because the next thing I know, Kevin is shaking Chris awake. I hear him say, Chris, Chris, we need your weather wisdom up on the bridge. So they, they stagger out into the storm. And I get my wits together. I get my notebook together. And that's when they come back in. They're soaked to the bone from the wind and the, from the rain and the, and the waves. And I say, Kevin, Chris, what's going on? Kevin says, well, we just got some challenging news. We know Patty made it to the surface. We are watching on the sonar. We are pinging her all the way. We know she made it to the top. But that's the last we saw of her. The radio beacon isn't working. The strobe light isn't working. And we certainly can't see her little orange hard hat because we can't see our noses in front of our faces out there. So we may have, we may have lost the science. Patty's missing. Patty's gone. So there's nothing we can really do about it that night. We just have to lie in our sleeping bags and wait till morning. But eventually morning does come, and there's an endless gray sky and an endless gray ocean and no spot of orange anywhere to be seen. But we stay out there for hours. You know, We think about where she might have drifted. We look at the ocean currents, and we examine the storm patterns, and we go up and down and back and forth until eventually we get a call from the Guam Harbor Control, and they say, you know that storm you just survived last night? That was just a little piece of a really big typhoon, and the rest of it is coming your way. You have no choice. You have to call it. Mission's over. The mission's a failure. So we have no choice. We start motoring back towards Guam as fast as we can. And I'm talking with Chris and Kevin there on the deck as we head back. And Chris is, you know, he, he says, well, we lost this one, but we'll build another one. We'll build five more. We'll build 10 more. And he's putting a brave face on it, but I can tell that he's really pissed that he lost his toy. Kevin says, well, Poseidon demanded a sacrifice. And he says, well, you know, the first moon probes, we didn't get those back either. We crashed them into the surface of the moon. We didn't get them back, but we did it, and we learned from it. And that was the first phase of exploration, and the next phase was better, and the next phase after that. And you know, Chris Welsh did not get what he wanted. He did not get to take the first solo dive to the Mariana Trench, because about 10 months later, James Cameron did that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get what I wanted either. I didn't get a story of science triumph on the waves. But Kevin, 
I think Kevin got exactly what he wanted. Something he touched with his own hands made it to the bottom of the trench. He brought his friend's ashes to the bottom of the trench. After a whole life of trying, he'd finally gone deep. Thank you very much. That was Eliza Strickland. Eliza is an editor for the magazine IEEE Spectrum, where she was assigned the daunting beat of covering technology across the Asian continent. On her third day on the job, a tsunami flooded the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, causing the worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl. She spent the next two years writing about the catastrophe, its human cost, and the future of energy. And this one time, in Seoul, she rode the world's fastest elevator. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, and Ari Daniel. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall for hosting the show, and to the deep ocean for being largely unexplored. Thanks for listening. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.